The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. And we're live. Uh, it is Thursday, January 27th, 5.05 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and we're not allowed to have fun anymore, but uh, we are allowed to talk about having a new democratically appointed uh, Supreme Court justice uh, on the bench with the recent announcement of Justice Breyer's retirement uh, at the end of this term. And joining us today is uh, both old hands at the show are uh, Jamal Green, uh, professor at Columbia, and newly tenured professor at Michigan Law School, Leah Lippman. Um, and uh, the 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 I think like has the court we were just discussing has the corner on uh, pithy and witty and irreverent Supreme Court quotes printed onto various <laughs> clothing paraphernalia. Um, but it's so great to see both of you. This is such like an all-star conversation to be having. I I mean, you were literally kind of the first two people I thought of. So thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And congrats um, to you. Yeah, congrats Thank you. Leo. I've fallen so uh, far behind Scott Shapiro in, in lieu of fun appearances. I will never possibly be able to catch up, but I thought it was worth the old college try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you like you briefly overtook him and then we made him a co-host. And so you that's just yeah, that's probably yeah, not nothing you can happen. do about that. <laughs> um so I want to start I was telling you we were talking in the green room before, uh just like kind of where to start. And I I know it's not really like the most necessarily the most logical place to start, but selfishly, uh, I just kind of was curious, whenever something like this happens, they bring in all the, these former clerks uh, to talk about what's going on with uh, with the, the with the court and like to kind of like talk about the politics behind the scenes. And I was just kind of curious, like, how much is this type of decision do clerks generally know and gossip about this type of thing or have like an idea that this is happening um, before the public knows? Uh, or does it really vary from justice to justice? And I mean, I, I guess kind of I'm related to that was like the Tubin leak. Do you think something that kind of created or instigated him announcing this when he announced it? I don't know, Leah, if you want to start, but Jamal, you can start too. Um, I guess I'm kind of skeptical that, you know, law clerks know these kind of retirement um, announcements in advance of when they happen. You know, it is possible that in conversations with the justice, you know, as they kind of happen naturally, just in like staying in touch and whatnot, someone might get a sense about, you know, how they are feeling about, you know, the world, uh, their work at any particular moment. Um, but I'm not sure that law clerks have any particular insight into a justice's retirement decisions in advance. Um, I don't think that's really something that the justices kind of like give their clerks a heads up about. Um, although like people might have an intuition one way or another, just by virtue of like getting to know them, you know, by working for them um, for a year. So I guess I, I don't really think it, you know, is something that is discussed among kind of clerk groups. Um, you know, the Tubin thing is fascinating because 
you know, he suggested last week that a Briar retirement was imminent and everyone kind of dismissed it when he said it and yeah. it didn't happen. Well, he's a know, little bit persona non grata. Well, it, it, it didn't <laughs> happen like within 24 to 48 hours of him announcing it. And he said, you know, I'm going to discuss this on CNN. And then he goes on CNN and, you know, Breyer doesn't retire. And so we're all sitting around thinking, well, okay, does he mean at the end of the term? And we've just kind of written this off. And then all of a sudden, a week later, it happens. And so, you know, I wonder if he received some inklings, but didn't have the kind of confirmation that would fly in order to run the story in the same way that, you know, Pete Williams later got, um, but that, you know, the inklings that again, were the basis of, you know, the actual planned retirement, um, you know, he got some wind of, but again, didn't have the kind of sourcing that would allow him to say definitively, Justice Breyer is going to retire. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think, I think all of that is right. I, I think it's, I don't, I don't know the, the degree to which other justices, clerks, you know, know um, in advance at all about retirements. If they do, I think it's very, it's very unlikely that they would be the ones to to leak um, that to the press or someone else. They they have a lot at stake in um, in not pissing off their justice, um, and 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 so I I think it's unlikely to come from a clerk. You know, if I'm if I'm guessing how this gets to Tubin, it's you know Justice Breyer has a lot of friends, um, and and you know Tubin's a very well connected reporter. Uh, and, uh, you know, someone's, you know, some, someone he knew, you know, over a drink or, you know, in, in a moment of, of more candor than he should have um, had said, oh, you know, I think this is going to happen. And then Tubin, knowing that it was likely to happen, regardless of whether he had heard the leak or not, um, and that he's, you know, he's on pretty um, safe ground, um, that, that, that Breyer will retire at some point um, before the midterms said, you know, I'm going to run with this. That's my guess, but who knows? Can I just add one yeah. other possibility? Yeah, sure. So Justice Breyer was in the habit of going out to lunches with clerks. There's this tradition at the Supreme Court where you go out to lunch with all of the different justices. So the law clerks for Justice Kagan will go out to lunch with Justice Breyer, and then they'll later go out to lunch with Justice Sotomayor, so on and so forth. And Justice Breyer would take all of the law clerks to the same place, Montmartre, and he would loudly discuss the court's pending cases with them. And, you know, he didn't it's intend... It's like a good place to hang out exactly, if you're a reporter. Exactly, <laughs> to, you know, publicize um, secret or non-public information about the court. But he liked to talk about the court's business with clerks. And he oftentimes did so, or at least not, you know, or more than once would do so in public spaces. Um, I don't know that that's more likely than what uh, Jamal hypothesized, <laughs> but it's a non-zero possibility. Yeah. No, totally. Go so ahead, one, Genevieve. One of the more recent things that I, just as an observer of the court and have obviously no experience with it, but um, his description of his clerks being busy beavers during oral argument was very endearing. Is there any memory that any of you have as your time of clerking that is especially fond of your judge or justice? Of our own judge. Um, many. Um uh, I, I will say something just to just to, to keep it on on Breyer for the moment. Um, I mean, I, I I love Justice Stevens, who I clerk for, but but um, Justice Breyer uh, re required a lot of his clerks, right? So he so that so clerks generally have to write um, bench memos for for justices, although Justice Stevens did not require them. Um, Justice Breyer did, uh, and 
they'd be long and involved and um, he would be very engaged in um, in research and his clerks were like working all the time um, is my my recollection. I don't know if Leah had the same experience, but uh, but but he was very reliant on his clerks, but not in a not in the way that, you know, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like it wasn't that he was lazy and was just sort of relying on 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 their labor or something. It was that he was really engaged and um, and really wanted to know a lot about the record and wanted to know a lot of 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 relevant facts and um, and so you know he needed help with that. Uh, uh, but that that if I just you know if I think about his chambers, it was like a very very hardworking, really busy chambers. Yeah. Um, Leah, I was going to ask, I wanted to kind of bring us back to, um, I'm going to put it into the chat, the Washington and Post um, op-ed that you wrote. Um, and I'm kind of very curious, uh, do you think that, I mean, obviously he wants kind of there's 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 politics at play here that I mean that seems very obvious but what the tipping point was for right this moment in this term versus next year versus the year after um you're obviously saying you're avoid that he's avoiding the mistake of ginsburg do you really think that that this is that ginsburg's decision not to retire is uh, is it is like almost tarnishing her legacy in a sense and that that's what he's trying to avoid or do you think that um it's really it's you know is it a personal decision about legacy basically or is it about the the actually like the outcome of the court and wanting to like ensure that the that the the liberal justices count is preserved i don't know that i can you know offer a definitive guess about, you know, what the precise motivations of Justice Breyer are, or how he might view, you know, Justice Ginsburg's replacement, um, uh, you know, with um, Justice Barrett. Um, but I do think, you know, announcing in January is a little bit atypical odd timing. You know, the last few justices who have announced in advance at the end of the term when they've said we're retiring, you know, at the end of the term were Justice Stevens and Justice Souter, both of whom announced in April. And then Justice Kennedy, of course, announced on the very last day of the Supreme Court's term in June. Um, you know, it's possible that Justice Breyer honestly like didn't plan to release this information until later and it got out ahead of him, as we were suggesting earlier. It's also possible he wanted to give, you know, the Senate and the president a lot of time to vet a nominee, a lot of time to hold hearings and, you know, have a confirmation happen, you know, before the end of the term so the new justice is ready to go. Um, any of those things are possible. You know, the um, point I made in the Washington Post piece about Justice Ginsburg is just that her decision not to retire, you know, when Democrats held the presidency and the Senate, you know, has been kind of revealed to be hugely disastrous and hugely consequential for a lot of people. You know, people in Texas um, are the second most populous state, are not able to access safe and legal abortions because Justice Barrett rather than Justice Ginsburg is now on the Supreme Court. And there's just like no getting around that consequence, you know, given the vote breakdown in the SB8 cases. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that her decision is going to affect how people think about her many years after or like her legacy in that sense. Um, but I think, you know, seeing the consequences of that decision play out so pointedly and so quickly, you know, on an issue that was so important to Justice Ginsburg, um, it would be hard to ignore as that's happening right in front of you. Um, and like you are watching it play out. 
Do you kind of do you agree with that, Jamal? Or yeah, I mean, I, I as with Leah, I wouldn't want to go too far towards um, armchair um, speculation. Though I think there are a lot of what I'll say is I think there are a lot of different data points that one could point to if you want to engage in armchair speculation. Um, obviously, the thought of retirement has been, you know, he in his mind for a very long time, right? So I I wouldn't assume that there's any particular event that is what caused him to make this decision. He may have well made this decision six months ago, for all I know. Um, but I I will say, you know, there are a few things that you know, about the timing of this that, you know, if you if you did want to want to speculate, you know, one is the the um, the OSHA um, vaccine or test uh, case a, a couple of weeks ago, where at oral argument, Justice Breyer seemed, I'll, I'll say more exasperated than he normally does um, with uh, with the other justices and their their resistance to what he understood to be sort of ordinary um, administrative decision making. He is someone who really cares about the administrative state and the power of the administrative state to use its expertise uh, to um, govern effectively. And this was sort of um, it, what what I think anyone with his set of views would view as a just completely, um, uh, I'll just say, hackery, right? For, um, in terms of how the court comes out here, uh, this is like the exact opposite of where someone like Justice Breyer would sit in terms of what an agency should be allowed to do in the face of a surrounding um, uh, emergency. Uh, so, you know, maybe, you know, there's something about the, the the brazenness of the majority opinion that 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 may have said, you know, this is, there's only so long you can sort of keep the politics out of this institution and I've got to, you know, do my part. Um, you know, the court, it, it happened very recently, but, the, but he would have known for um, some time that the court was about to take this Harvard affirmative action case and this um, UNC affirmative action case. Uh, um, these are going to be very, very important cases are argued at the beginning of the next term. He knows he's going to be replaced by an African-American woman. Um, you know, you might want to make sure that that person has as much ramp as possible um, towards those cases. You know, it, so any number of little things, of course, not, none of us can get inside his head. And, uh, and I, I think it is a little presumptuous to assume you know, he just decided last week whether to retire or not. Um, but, but there are some there are some hints for for people to speculate about on on Twitter or whatever. So Leah has to. Sorry, GDF. I just realized that Leah has to jump off soon. Um, but so before she goes, I wanted to kind of quickly ask, um, Leah, you've been you have been like one of my favorite people to follow. Also because you talk about you like you like put up my friends' names when you're like posting people that the people I went to law school with. I'm like, yes, like they should be a judge um, when you're talking about nominees for the bench. Um, and I couldn't agree more with some of the people that you put up. But who are, who do you, do, if you had to kind of name some forerunners, um, are, is like the names that you're seeing, are are they, are they the same names? Are you seeing, are, do, do you have, what are you thinking that they're, the who the people are going to be? I think the names that people are talking about are the ones that are going to end up being nominated to the Supreme Court. I think it will be either Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, you know, who was recently appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, or Justice Leandra Kruger, who is an associate justice on the California Supreme Court. I think either of them would be terrific justices. Um, both of them would bring, you know, a lot of professional diversity, a lot of firsts to the court. You know, Justice Kruger was. Um, 
uh, the first black woman to be editor in chief of the Yale Law Journal. Um, she would be, you know, a rare justice coming from a state Supreme Court. Um, I was just going to you know, say that. That's actually what I was kind of thinking was so remarkable, too. She's 45. Um, you know, she argued a bunch of cases in the Solicitor General's office. Um, you know, she was suggested as a possible nominee to be Solicitor General of the United States. People think extremely highly of her. Um, and Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson was a public defender um, before you know she became a federal judge. There is no one who has represent, represented indigent criminal defendants on the Supreme Court right now. She's worked on the Sentencing Commission. Um, she actually clerked for Justice Breyer. Uh, Leandra Kruger also clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Stevens, um, uh, like Jamal. Um, but so so both of them would bring you know some new perspectives um, to the court, um, some additional you know, professional experiences that are lacking on the Supreme Court right now. Um, and both of them are just extremely smart, skilled lawyers. Um, and you know, I think should be easily confirmed, but I think it's gonna be you know, one of them. I, 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 that's my inclination. And you've been hearing about the double switch um, of um, Kamala Harris, obviously, as a possibility. But I think that that's, I mean, besides the crazy like kind of like the 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 logistics of that <laughs> um and uh, and the appearance of that being very difficult one of the things that has struck me is the the likelihood of it putting an ada uh, or sorry a da like basically onto on the on the court seems like seems not like the move right now and the other person that you've been hearing that isn't a justice is cheryl cheryl eiffel and i was just like wondering if what your thoughts were about um non-justice uh non-justice nominees generally I think Sherilyn Eiffel would be a transformational justice and an amazing justice. She is, of course, the current and soon to be outgoing president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first um, uh, you know, black justice, was, of course, also you know, the former director counsel of the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund. And I think it would be really amazing for the first black woman you know, justice to also come from um, LDF. Um, you know, Sherilyn is a fantastic advocate, um, intellect, you know, she has done some amazing work kind of exposing, um, you know, the history of lynchings and the frequency with which like lynchings were happening at like public offices, um, that again, would bring, you know, a kind of expertise that, you know, the current justices just do not have. Um, and, you know, I think she would be wonderful. Um, but I think just realistically, you know, it is more likely to be someone who is a current judge. Um, there used to be, you know, a wonderful tradition of frequently appointing justices who weren't sitting judges. Um, and of course, Justice Kagan was appointed, you know, when um, she was not currently a judge. So it's not out of the question, but it does seem more likely that would be either Justice Kruger or Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, even though I think obviously Sherilyn would be a wonderful Supreme Court justice. Um, uh, but it does seem to be, you know, there are other nominees who, um, you know, are already judges and, you know, also, yeah. One of the things yeah. also that was notable, especially during the press conference, um, was that it seemed like this is an attempt to reset the normative values of how an appointment process is supposed to go. So we have this announcement of a retirement. There's a due, um, I believe President Biden said that by the end of February, he'd like to have his nominee um, stated. And then he would theoretically then have them go through the process of getting a, the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, how much of this do you guys think is just trying to lay out a very clear plan so that if there's any reaction from the, um, or first of all, trying to get it before midterms, and then secondly, trying to reset the disruptions that we saw with the past two nominations? 
that got a little muddled. No, no, I think it's fine. Leah, so I don't know when you Leah have to go to jump in before she leaves, but yeah. Oh, sure. I'll just say something quickly. Um, you know, I think they will try to do this before the midterms. I think they will successfully do it before the midterms. Um, I hope that they will, you know, get this started kind of before the end of the Supreme Court term. Um, but a part of me also really hopes that this does not um, detract from their ability to fill the existing vacancies on the federal court of appeals and district courts um, as well. Um, uh, you know, as to whether this will restore a degree of normalcy to Supreme Court um, confirmations, um, uh, I am not holding out hope. Um, just because I think the the new norm that has been established is, you know, when the president and the Senate are the same party, the president gets to you know select a Supreme Court justice, but when they're not, you know, they can't. Um, I don't doubt that Senate Republicans are probably going to try to delay this process. You know, we already have Senator Susan Collins suggesting that they shouldn't follow the timeline that Republicans followed for Justice Barrett. Um, uh, and, you know, of course, Democrats just hold a 50-50 majority with B.B. Um, Harris able to break ties in the Senate, um, which might limit their ability to kind of move, you know, more quickly. But, um, you know, I, I think that they will be able to get it done before the midterms. Um, and I hope they are you know, able to get it kind of squared away before the end of the term, um, which, as Justice Breyer's letter you know, of retirement suggests, like he kind of wants, a you know, a successor to be nominated, confirmed before the end of the term so that when the term happens, right, he can retire and that person can replace him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah I don't, I'll, I'll just say I let you go because I don't want to like shove you away. But like, I also don't want to like, I, I, you promised us like a couple, like 20 to 30 minutes. So I don't want to like, uh, force you to do anything if you have other things to be on. Um, but but I'm I'm also very interested to hear what Jamal thinks about that question, especially also given the fact that the I think the weren't you tweeted I think you tweeted just before you came on the show about the how it was fairly weird that the executive office was the the executive was having this press conference with uh, with the justice at the White House. So I, I don't I don't know that it's weird in, in, in that it's unusual. I don't I don't know how other, I, I think it my, my recollection is that it's a bit unusual that most announcements happen with a note sent to the president from uh, from the justice. And there's no particular pre, you know press conference or anything like that. Uh, I, I, I did send a tweet out because I, I was reminded of something that Justice Stevens um, was uh, was very focused on, which is uh, and has become a tradition and remains a tradition that. Um, when justices are confirmed, they get sworn in at the at the White House, and he always thought that was sort of weird. That oh, that's like, right. It's the swearing. Once you become in. a justice, once you become a justice, you you know you should send the message that we don't we are no longer connected to the White House in any way, and and I think that's the right message to send, and I think it's the right message to send um, at at the retire moment of retirement too, um, insofar as retirement is sort of the flip side of you know we we have this we, one of the traditions we now have is you you know you pick your replacement ideologically, I think that's a, a pretty unseemly um, tradition. You can't unilaterally disarm from it, right? So I'm not blaming Justice Breyer, right? But um, but, but, but it, it does remain a little bit unseemly that, you know, you sort of tie your retirement to the president in some particular way. Um, on, the, on the timing, I totally agree with Leah that um, there'll be enough time to, to have this process or should be enough time to have this process well before the midterms. It, it wouldn't surprise me if that was itself a factor in the retirement happening at this moment, right? So that you don't have to have a rushed process. Um, and Justice Breyer, you know, wrote this book about um, about the the relative absence of politics at the court, uh, and uh, and if his legacy was another sort of super rushed confirmation process to get it in under the wire before the election, 
um, I would think that you know he would find that distasteful. Um, so he he does you know he, by by doing this in January he gives enough enough time for the for the Senate to have a normal process if they want to. Yeah, Leah, I don't know if you have time to answer this, but they, uh, but we were talking really briefly um, in the green room also about kind of this this new uh, the Rosemary Pooler and um, Jose Cabranes's. Um, uh, decision to retire simultaneously and to kind of with the purpose of kind of having a sense of who their replacements were going to be um, or at least kind of a sense of of who would be appointing them and that they would be assured of like you know before they left it was almost conditional um not it wasn't I, I I don't remember the exact language but I remember kind of being surprised by it it seemed like um, a bold and kind of new move and I'm I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on and whether kind of Things like that happening in the that was in the second circuit. Things like that happening in the second circuit kind of are responsive to all of the the political jockeying um, around uh, the Supreme Court as well. You know, we've also seen that elsewhere. I think there was like a seventh circuit judge who indicated that they would retire, but then rescinded it when you know the White House wasn't going to select the former clerk. I think that that level of being involved in picking your successor is. Uh, different in kind and in degree than what uh, yeah. Jamal was referencing, you know, picking the president who would pick your right. successor and picking them ideologically. Um, yes, so totally. That, that I think is um, several bridges too far um, and definitely inappropriate. Um, and I, I, I just very much doubt and cannot imagine that Justice Breyer would engage in that behavior or President Biden would as well. You know, Ruth Marcus and her book, Supreme Ambition, you know, suggested Justice Kennedy did engage in that behavior and suggesting that he wanted it to be, you know, now Justice Kavanaugh who would replace him and the White House kind of signaling that like, yeah, it's going to be him, you know, influence his decision to retire. Um, I, I just don't think Justice Breyer, that that is part of the calculus. I mean, again, he, he knows who's on the short list. Um, you know, he's seen comments, um, but I don't imagine that he is having conversations and sitting down with the White House along the lines of, well, if it's gonna be this person, we'll go. But on that note, I really need to leave. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm sorry, Jamal, I was talking so much uh, because I was only gonna be here for a short amount of time, but it was it was really great to see all of you. Yeah. It was great to see you too, Leah. See you soon. Bye. So uh, Jamal, what's your impression of that? I mean, I agree with Leah completely. Like, I think it's a very strange um, thing to kind of start doing, which is it is definitely one thing to kind of pick the picker, uh, but a, a different thing to to pick your successor directly or to have to try to exercise some level of control over it. And I'm I'm curious whether that's your those are that's like your thought process as well. So I so I, I think what Leah is referring to um, in terms of you know, rescinding your retirement if the person yeah. you like isn't picked, uh, I think that's uh, clearly beyond the pale. Uh, I, I don't think that that's likely to be what's happening with uh, Judge Cabranos and Judge Pooler um, on the Second Circuit. Um, it's not that unusual, and there are some historical examples um, uh, to say for for a judge to say, you know, I'll stay on until the confirmation of my successor, and 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 that makes a lot of sense in this day and age when there's now a stronger, or I should say a weaker norm of sort of automatically or um, giving substantial deference to the to the president and picking a, a judge, you know, if it, if it might be months or years, right, until there's a successor, um, 
it's perfectly seemed perfectly reasonable to say, look, I'm going to stick around. So, you know, don't 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 think you can have an eight member court if it happens that, you know, uh, the, the demise of a, of a single de Democratic senator changes the Senate. Right. So um, so um, so so I, I, I don't find it so strange in the in the context of our times. Uh, although, again, if it were if it really were about picking a specific person, um, that would be problematic. But but I don't I don't I don't believe that's what's happening here. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, the I'm curious. We've, so we know that he's announced that it's going um, that the successor will be um, a black woman, which is great. But there's been also a lot of talk about kind of the religious makeup of the Supreme Court. And I'm curious if you think that this is um, as much of an issue as, um, as as people have been long discussing that the Catholic Jewish kind of breakdown and the lack of Protestant um, kind of uh, representation. Do you think that that like, you know, you, you we talk about like we, we we well we talk about there is a theory of that like you should leave your politics at the table and of course that you should leave your um, your religious affiliation at the table. But do we, especially as we're continuing to see these kinds of religious liberty cases and um, cases around women's right to choose, like this seems like these are intractable with some of these, uh, the like these, some of the, relig the religious affiliation of these judges. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts? Um, you know, I, I think, I, I think a general commitment to, uh, diversity along a number of dimensions, including religion, um, is uh, is a laudable thing for uh, for a Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's uh, what one Protestant on the court, and that's Gorsuch, who is an Episcopalian, I believe, yeah. um, uh, is is certainly odd given the makeup of the of the country. But to be honest, I'm not sure that I see this. It's not clear to me what what it has to do substantively with the, the cases the court decides, right? So, um, yes, there are. But it could influence the ones they select, though, no? I mean, sure. I mean, any number of experiences can influence, and I, and I don't. Again, I don't doubt that religion is is an important formative part of people's experience. So I, I do think that, as with any other form of diversity, um, as with many other forms of diversity, you know, something as constitutive as religion, I think, is important. I, I just hesitate to draw straight lines, um, as I would with race as well. But I, I feel hesitant to draw straight lines and say, you know, because they've got all these Catholic just, justices, they're going to decide religion cases in a particular way. You know, the reason a, a bunch of justices on the current court um, uh, are, are very in favor of religious liberty is because they right, have a certain view, right? That And that view is not necessarily tied to their you know, Joe Biden's a practicing Catholic as well, but he has a different set of views, right? So, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to draw the, you know, draw a straight line, but, uh, but I do think, you know, I think diversity is important. I think in ha having people from different religious traditions, especially um, uh, rep represented within the country, is is a is an important thing, including non-religious traditions as well. Yeah, um, GDF, I want to give you the chance to ask, but I also see a baby in your lap, so I'm happy to keep going. <laughs> No, we have some great questions. I think it would be really wonderful. Okay, to awesome. Oh, actually, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna go to Jack first. Jack, um, welcome to In Love Fun and great question. The floor is yours. So I had two questions. The first one was kind of simple and was more of a, a Leah Littman question, I think, uh, which is, uh, 
when Justice Thomas or Justice Alito is going to insert "Let's go, Brandon" into one of their opinions. Um, the that more, is a Leah Lippman question. <laughs> uh, the more involved question is uh, that people think that anyone careerist enough to want to be interested in a, a position on the Supreme Court would take it under any circumstances. And the question is, does the prospect of writing or signing on to only dissents in all of the big cases for the foreseeable future take any of the shine off of the position for prospective candidates? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Wow. That, I mean, I think that is a great question and one that's been that that may not have been really on the table but until very recently, um, e even when there was a, a, a there's been a conservative majority on the court for um, from for my whole lifetime. Uh, but uh, but the, the, the extent of it today and the fact that a number of those people are quite young and will be on the court for a long time, uh, I think does raise that that issue. Um, uh, you know, it, it's hard to. I think you're right that that for the for the kinds of lawyers who find themselves in the position of being considered for a Supreme Court justice, it's one of these things where you know, they they th their whole life it's been clear to them that they would not turn that position down. Um, I do think it might. I, I think it's more likely to influence how long someone stays in the court than. Um, than whether they take the position in the first place. You know, things can change very quickly. Um, this is something that we forget, and I think people on the progressive side feel very despairing right now. Um, but they also felt very, and they also felt very despairing, like right before Justice Scalia passed away, and then they got very ecstatic for three weeks or something, and then they realized that um, it wasn't going to go the way they thought. Um, uh, but but I, I can, you know, I can certainly imagine if you're part of the three of a 6-3 court um, for, 15 years, 20 years, you know, seeking that out for 30 or 35 or 40 years um, seems to me something that that um, is a unique form of torture. Um, and if you're not actually making law, if you're just sort of um, expressing yourself, but at some point you've expressed yourself as much as you're going to. Um, so I, I think that might be something to, to look out for and look out for with, you know, people like Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan as well. Um, uh, and and you know see if there's a democratic president and a democratic senate and they still are in the minority like this certainly wouldn't surprise me if they didn't stick around as long as a as a as a justice stevens or as a william o douglas did yeah i so you 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 and leah were talking before about and i wanted to ask this question then but we got kind of sidetracked about Breyer being um, like a little annoyed in oral arguments and kind of a little bit testy. And Nina Totenberg, I think, was on strict scrutiny and talked about it as well. Um, but do you think there's a sense that maybe he's not? And I, and I don't know this. Like once you're once you're in this position and it's so there, there's so much wrapped up in it that like he's not having fun anymore. That he doesn't like. He's not enjoying like the intellectual. Like like that he's not in. He's he's just kind of not as like thrilled with like the balance and the kind of what's happening. Or or do you think that it couldn't be something that simple? I, I mean, I, I won't say it couldn't be that. And and I and you know, part of me and this is why I brought this up earlier. Part part of me wouldn't be surprised if you know if he's trying to say you know is it sort of now or never? Should I should I fish or cut bait? And then you see a case where the sort of where. The, the fact that you've got this agency, you know, passing what seems to be a, a reasonable regulation in response to an emergency, and then the 
majority just sort of blows right through it. Um, that, and he's helpless, right? He he tried at oral argument, and he's he's helpless. Um, yep. Would it surprise me if if that if he said, okay, now is the, it's that's it? You know, no, it wouldn't surprise me um, uh, at all. But 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 I would I hesitate to say that he's not having fun anymore. Um, uh, I don't know that I see that much evidence that he's having less fun than he had in the past. I mean, he's a very serious person, but also a person who's very intellectually engaged. Um, you know, I, 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 I haven't seen signs that he is sort of less engaged at oral argument or not sort of interested in the in the case uh, cases or. And you do see that with some justices, right? I mean, there, 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 there is a history of people who are who are just checked out and and um, and aren't you know, aren't participating in the way that they used to. I haven't seen that that much with Justice Breyer. Yeah. I think that that's, I think that that um, makes sense. I just, I mean, just even the way that Leah described him enjoying taking the clerks out and talking about all the cases and engaging with them. It seems, I guess, what I mean by fun, it's not like he's joking, necessarily joking around or taking his job lightly. It's just that he yeah. loves the intellectualness of it. And if he feels like he's being cheated of that or it's, there's less of it, it might strike me that he would be like, meh. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on, you know, with him behind the scenes. You know, I will say, you know, he was the the law clerks have had this tradition um, of of having these weekly happy hours at the court. Um, and Justice Breyer, at least when I was there, Justice Breyer was the only justice who would who would relatively consistently show up at these things. And so he would like to, it was in the middle courtyard of the court, and he'd sort of like to chat with the clerks and and. You know, it wouldn't surprise me. This is something we could investigate whether this still happens in the in in COVID times. But you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, as someone who likes to 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 kind of shoot the breeze with with law clerks and get to know people, and uh, that 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 there maybe there's a coldness in the building that there wasn't before. I think I think people in lots of workplaces around the world um, have felt that. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if if the place, like like so many workplaces, uh, is is a less just a less fun place. Um, than it than it used to be. Well, we should get him on the show. This is like yeah. what we're all about here. <laughs> uh, Richard Wattenberger, great to see you. Uh, go ahead. Great to see you too. Uh, great to see you, GEF and Jamal. Um, so this question kind of piggybacks on Jack's question uh, having to do with who would want to be on this court, and uh, at least that's part of the motivation, what liberal would want to be on this court, rather. Um, so my question is, in the history of the Supreme Court, how significant in general have dissents been for subsequent rulings and in the crafting of new legislation to address the undesirable consequences of a decision? And I have in mind here a strategic need for liberals to establish new rationales for policies to which the court has been averse, especially when conservatives hold the lopsided majority. So I, I tend to think that that, you know, if there's a case to be made for why a liberal would want to be on this court, that's it's in that space. Um, there have been there have been quite a number of, you know, historical dissents that have turned into majority opinions in later years or have turned into legislation. The, there's a the, the um, Lilly Ledbetter Act, um, which was a, a, an equal pay act, uh, was passed um, because of uh, a, a, a dissent that Justice Ginsburg read from the bench. Um, in the in the early uh, 2000s, uh, so that's a that's a prominent um, example. Uh, but but there's also you know you, you lay the intellectual groundwork for 
what's going to happen when you're in the majority in in dissenting opinions. Uh, uh, and there's lots of historical examples of of, of that as well. You know, we, we think about Justice Brandeis and the Fourth Amendment as a as a prime example, or or Justice Harlan and his many dissents in in constitutional cases. Um, Justice Stevens had a number of dissents that ended up turning into majority opinions uh, as well. Bowers versus Hardwick is a is an example of of that. Um, so it so it does happen, and I, I and maybe connecting this question to the last uh, point, you know, Justice Breyer um, is someone who um, has a, a very a very definite methodology for approaching cases. Uh, and he has laid that out in opinions, in, in majority opinions, in dissenting opinions, in numerous books, um, at oral argument, um, in, in lots of speeches. Uh, and, you know, at some point you've sort of said what you've, what you've said your piece, right? Um, and so for him, I can certainly see the case for saying, look, I've, in dissent, all you have is, is your, is, you know, um, is your legacy. Um, and I've already, you know, sort of done that. But for someone for someone new to, to come on, I think that is the, you know, that that is the promise is even if you're dissenting for a long time, uh, maybe you get the attention of Congress on, on something. Um, maybe you know, it's a big platform, right? So, um, you know, every law student is going to read, you know, read your opinions in a big case, um, if you if you make enough noise, and that's, you know, that's a big deal um, uh, for uh, trying to shape the law in the long term, it's very easy for me to think in this way as an academic. This is what we're always doing, is you know shaping the law for a hundred years from now. But I, I think judges do that as well, at least at the level of the of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I was listening. I, oh, go ahead, GDF. Can I ask you what you think the effects will also be on jurisprudential thinking and like how people approach their own legal interpretation, especially students, and where you think that. Um, yeah, I would just like to hear a little bit in more. In terms about of Justice that. Breyer's effect? Yes. Cuz he spoke so he spoke so much about the the students in his uh uh when he was speaking today. Well, I I do think that there are there are opinions of Justice Breyer's that I certainly hope are being assigned to people as someone who is um who is somewhat intellectually simpatico with with Justice Breyer on a number of things. Uh, I think of um, his dissenting opinion in uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, um, for example, um, which is a, this gun, you know, gun control case from 2008. And the main dissent's written by the justice I clerk for, Justice Stevens, and he writes an elaborate historical defense of the idea that that the Second Amendment um, only applies in the militia context. And then Justice Breyer writes this dissent where he's sort of like, well, yeah, okay, I'll sign on for, to Justice uh, Stevens's opinion, but what we really should be thinking about is who cares if there's a right to bear arms? The question is, how far does it go? What kinds of regulations does it allow? Um, look at what has, has historically, we have to build out, um, you know, what an originalist would call the construction of this um, right. particular right, rather than just thinking about it in an interpretive sense. And I think there's a, there's so much wisdom um, in that, in that opinion. Uh, I do think, you know, I, I think back to in the in the I think early 2000s, Dahlia Lithwick had this great line where she is comparing Justice Breyer to Justice Scalia, uh, and says, you know, Justice Scalia has all these you know pithy um, uh, phrases and turns turns of phrase, and he's really charismatic in the way that he talks. But whereas for for Justice Breyer to explain his ideology, it takes an hour on Charlie Rose, is what what, what she said. Um, <laughs> and I think there's a lot to that in that I don't know how successful Justice Breyer has been in reaching out to people in the same way, at least not in the same way that a 
Dennis Scalia um, um, did. Uh, 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 he's got lots of books, um, and those books have quite a lot of wisdom in them. Uh, uh, and so my, my hope is that um, in his retirement, there might be a, a re-engagement with some of his thinking, um, um, because I, I do think that that there's a lot there, there's a lot to say for his focus on facts, um, for his attention to institutional context, right? He's a he he's a he's an old school. He's like an OG progressive. I um, well, this and Linda Linda Greenhouse wrote this. I don't know if you saw her op-ed, but this was essentially I, I took to be what she was saying in her op-ed was that this I is she the, was retired. Right, she's she's back. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, I was, I, I was like, the Supreme I was, Court. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, exactly, yeah. She's riding the circuit um, of uh, of the of the she's, New York Times, sitting by designation, page. yeah. Yes, exactly, sitting by designation, just playing with us. Um, I know, I was so sad when she wrote her last column. Now she's had like three since I think that she's she can't let go. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, she had this great column today that was just ba- or that or yes, last night I think it came out, which was basically saying what you said that that an original an, an original kind of um, liberal in this sense. And but uh, do you think that kind of do you think that that do you think that has a reason that he doesn't feel like he has a pl- that his voice has like a place anymore in kind of the new conservative, new progressive kind of balance? I mean, that wouldn't seem to face. I wouldn't think that would face him. I, I doubt he thinks that. I think he's 83 years old and <laughs> Democrats are going to lose the midterms probably. So, I mean, so, uh, and he saw what happened with Justice Ginsburg, right? I mean, so I, I think those, you know, he, he he's he's reluctant to, to talk about it in these terms um, in, in part because he, he does, I think, genuinely believe that in a very substantial majority of, of cases uh, are not, in, are not ideological in the way that we, that we talk about them as being ideological. And I think he does want to hammer that home. Um, uh, but, you know, the, I, I think it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think this, this retirement is any more mysterious than it looks. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's right. And um uh, it, there, it doesn't, it actually is kind of one of the most straight, I think Dahlia Ath- Lithwick actually ha- had something in the last day that said that this was kind of the most politically kind of expedient or like planned uh, kind of retirement. So it's just like very clear what's happening. It's like, it's like very clear, like they're giving plenty of time for it to happen. Like, it's just, it's, it's not a huge, it's not a giant mystery. Um, uh, Charles, nice to see you. Um, we've covered, I think we've like, We've kind of yeah. Um, you guys have all really kind of covered my question. It was mostly a matter of what opportunity does does Breyer's uh, replacement have to make an impact. The conventional wisdom is this isn't going to change the balance of the court, which I think is probably right. That being said, is is it is it as meaningless as it appears on its face, or is well well let me let me say this. Um, no, Breyer did have a particular perspective on the law that I think is not quite. I mean, Kagan has some of it, but it's not quite. There's not quite another justice who's, who's like him. Um, Are you speaking he, specifically I, about agencies, or I, and like I'm, admin? I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about um, about proportionality um, mm. as a as a approach to thinking about rights. I'm thinking about foreign law. You know, Justice Breyer yeah. was uh, was a very worldly um, justice, right? He he would participate in this um, Yale Global Judges Conference for, for many years. He would be abroad a lot. He was fluent in French and 
would speak to French judges and um, hang out in Strasbourg and and hear about the European Court of Human Rights and 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 so forth. And he brought some of that into his judging. Um, there's no one on the court today now that Kennedy's gone. Now that Breyer's yeah. gone, there's no one on the court today who's really um, focused on comparative um, jurisprudence. And it, and and by that I mean I don't mean he's you know, bringing in foreign law in the way it's caricatured. Yeah. I mean that it it, it just shapes the sort of opportunity set that he views when he looks at the law. Uh, and and I think that's um, missing somewhat. I also think that um, he rel fairly transparently um, for a justice uh, tried to kind of broker deals. Um, uh, I don't, you know, it's hard to know when it actually worked or when it didn't work, right? But there are a couple of conspicuous instances of Justice Breyer um, joining surprising opinions um, in very closely contested cases. The uh, NFIB versus Sibelius, the Obamacare case where he and Justice Kagan um, join an opinion uh, striking down the Medicare expansion. Um, speaking of affirmative action, right, Gruder and Gratz, right? So the, the two yep. Michigan cases, Justice yep. Breyer um, and Justice O'Connor were the two people who were in the majority in both of those cases. And that might have been, you might have thought that was a little bit surprising, but you know, if you're someone who says, look, we've got a narrow path here and there's two cases here or there are two issues here uh, and I'm going to make sure that we hold on to the issue that really counts um, uh, and, and maybe trade that off for, I'm, you know, I, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but that's what it looks like is happening. Um, and I don't know that, I don't know whether his replacement will have those same instincts. Um, you know, Justice Kagan, I think maybe has some of those instincts, but, uh, but as, as one way to put it is if this were a six to three um, a progressive court, right? Justice Breyer would be the person who people on the conservative side were trying to capture. capture. Yeah, I um, mean, he was though. Like uh, he was. He Roberts, was. Right? But was it? I mean, like you just said with like Bruder, like, I, and this is how I remember him: is I remember him, him and O'Connor joint. I mean, that. I mean, I just, I always that has always like changed forever. Changed my my my. That was the moment in which I realized kind of the wisdom of what. Linda Greenhouse like wrote about was just like that he was kind of like a capturable um for a long time until the, the balance of the court changed and there's there's, there's some honesty about that well there's it's possible that you know if he was deal making if and if it worked and we don't know necessarily whether it did but that's that's that that matters um uh, uh you know if 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 it if it takes just a little bit of of statesmanship to hold on to a majority, a thin majority, and he's—he certainly is was someone who was willing to, to try to engage in that kind of statesmanship, and and so we'll see what happens with the replacement. So, um, GDF, feel free to like ask less questions, but I did hear, uh, I see some bouncing of Luke happening, so I uh, apologize. No, 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 don't <laughs> apologize. Um, I I am curious if you're optimistic uh, about kind of whether this. With, you know, is there anyone that can kind of fill the O'Connor, Breyer, the, I guess, kind of Kennedy-esque, the middle-ish role anymore on the court? Um, will there be? Um, will this kind of result in a, in a true, like, just like, kind of like a, like a constant, um, a constant uh, polarization? Or what do you think? Well, I don't, I don't, I, I, I want to caution against thinking that the current reality is the permanent reality. And I know it, yeah. it does look that way, but 
life throws you a lot of curveballs, um, and I have no idea what the court will look like in ten years. Even though I can make a prediction, but I don't. I really don't know. Um, I there's no there's no middle of the court in an O'Connor sense. Um, uh, certainly, you know, I, I will say that with Justice O'Connor and with Justice Kennedy, when they became the swing justice, um, there's some evidence that their decisions became um, more more sent more moderate. Um, than they were before. And that makes some sense, right? If you're, mm -hmm. if you have a certain ideology and you're, you know, throwing spitballs from the sideline uh, and then suddenly you're the decision maker, uh, you know, you've got to pay a little bit more attention to the the wages of, of your decisions. Um, and, and there's some evidence that that's happened. Maybe that's happened a little bit with John Roberts and it's a little bit hard to, to tell. Um, uh, I, and he certainly, um, he certainly is the most, um, the left most of the of the right side of the court, but he has five people to his right. Um, and so, um, you know, who is it? Is it Kavanaugh? Is it Barrett? Um, uh, you know, these are these are people who I do think have some um, some desire to be viewed as as people who are open to, to other views. Um, you think but Barrett does? I mean, I guess like she has, she hasn't even started like almost like, I mean, she, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. speculate too much, but um uh, but, 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 but they're, you know, these are really conservative judges, right? And so I, I don't have any particular reason to think they're going to be anywhere near the kind of moderate that, that an O'Connor was. Yes, yeah. but we even had, I believe it was Gorsuch. Um, he's gone because of some uh, decisions. I think Bostock was one where he sided with the liberals because of his intellectual. Well, yes and no. I mean, he, yeah. he, he came out with, a, you know, his, the, the outcome was an outcome that, that I think people on the left supported. So this is applying um, Title VII to sexual orientation and transgender status. Um, but the way he got there was through a kind of aggressively um, formalist um, textualism that in the case coming up, the Harvard Affirmative Action case um, leads in only one direction, right? Which is, which is there's no possibility of considering race in in admissions for a recipient of federal funding i have no there's no doubt in my mind as to where justice gorsuch comes out in that opinion so you know that the the formalism sometimes giveth and often taketh away yeah well said i think that that's right and the and I, we and um anita krishna kumar um was just on the sh who's um expert in in textualism and statutory interpretation she just moved to georgetown from st john's um she was on talking about Gorsuch's opinion on textualism in in the OSHA case, and just kind of, uh, and so it's not like he's that 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 is maybe going to be his kind of his as it was before, can continue to be his signature signature kind of like set of reasoning uh, on on things. And I think that that's I think you're completely right. Um, I think you're completely right on on the affirmative action cases. Um, so, um, so last so so generally like you're just like. It's gonna. We don't know what the court's gonna be like in the long term, in the next ten years. Maybe we don't know what it's gonna be like in the next two years. Um, and so, in that sense, kind of. I'm more confident we, about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. I was never expecting Scalia to to suddenly die. I mean, uh, so I, I mean that. Either, yeah. yeah, I know. So I mean, I think that that was. Uh, yeah, exactly. He was nice. Yeah, um, but. Uh, but I think that generally that that is, um, you know, I mean, there, I mean, Clarence Thomas has health issues. Also, like there's like a lot of stuff that could happen. I mean, 
that generally the the court is remarkably young. Um, but Sotomayor has health issues. Um, and so there's, you know, there's, there's certain types of things that you kind of think about, but yes, I mean, two to 10 years, like a lot can happen. And, uh, yeah, I, I do think that you're, I am interested. I think that what you, what you just said is, is, is interesting about throwing spitballs from the sidelines is how the writing and like the, the, the court generally moves when the, the shape of their colleagues moves around them. I think the context really does kind of, um, it'll be interesting to see how much it changes or how much it doesn't. So, yeah. I mean, before, before Grutter versus Bollinger, um, Chandra Day O'Connor had never signed on to an opinion um, approving of race conscious decision-making within the government before Fisher versus Texas, um, Anthony Kennedy had never done so. Um, and, and when they became the decision maker, you know, the, 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 they seemed to um, become a bit more moderate. I, I don't have a lot of confidence that's going to happen um, in the next race-based affirmative action case. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 I, but I do think, you know, there's a lot of weight on the shoulders of the person who writes an opinion that says, um, you know, we're, we're going to fundamentally transform, you know, some major segment of American life. Um, and uh, you know, I, have, I haven't seen a whole lot of hesitation so far um, in in doing that. I mean, the vaccine case, for example, but um, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, Jamal, it was so great to see you. Thank you for coming on. Um, and uh, GDF, I will let you just wave goodbye with Luke if you want to. But feel free to unmute yourself. <laughs> But um, Jamal, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we will be back uh, tomorrow, probably with Cheese Night. It's unclear uh, who our guest is, um, but uh, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. Um, but we are allowed to be like a little bit optimistic for the next kind of six months, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. This was completely joyless. So thank you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> wow, you said that with such a straight face. I almost believed you for a second. Bye, guys.